Uh, we're in a series called Foundations of the Faith, as you know, and we're trying to remind ourselves of the uh, doctrinal building blocks of our faith. Here they are. Uh, Lord willing, we'll fill this all up with rocks, uh, which are the bedrock of our belief system. And over the last few Wednesday nights, we've been talking about beliefs, about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And we began to speak after we uh, defined his nature. We spoke of his gifts in general terms, and I'd like to continue that topic tonight. Just to refresh your memory, last week we mentioned with regard to the gifts of the Spirit that they are, in fact, spiritual, not natural. And we mentioned that there's a wonderful, a great variety of these spiritual gifts. Uh, we mentioned that they are given, not earned or merited or even to be sought after. They are given. And uh, finally, we mentioned that they are given for the benefit of others, not for personal edification. Uh, but this is a wonderful, gracious thing the Father has done. He's made his deposit in our lives so we could spread the wealth. I made the statement that the gifts are to be given. So that's the purpose of the gifts. And tonight I'd like to just complete the list and give a few more general principles with reference to the gifts of the Spirit. So let's add this one to the list. It is important to identify your spiritual gift. And I'll tell you why it is. Last week we uh, considered a verse of Scripture which I'd like to call your attention to again this evening. It's this one, 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, verse 10. And it says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it, use it, in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And so based on that verse of Scripture, each of us is responsible for the good stewardship of the special, unique gift Almighty God has given to each of us who know Him by faith. And so we are to be, as the text says, good stewards of them. It's a wonderful word, steward. It's not a biblical term. It's a, a term that was used in general parlance, and it means a, a kind of a manager of a household. A steward is someone who doesn't own much, but who is given charge over what somebody else owns and possesses and has entrusted to him. So I love that analogy. We're not an owner of any of these wonderful spiritual treasures that Almighty God has given us. We're simply to exercise good stewardship of what really emanates from and belongs to another, and that is Almighty God. So since he has given us a, each a special gift to serve others, to glorify him, can you see that it's important to identify what it is Otherwise, how can we exercise good stewardship of it? And so in order to identify uh, one's spiritual gift, could I suggest a few things? Here are some questions you might want to ask yourself in seeking to identify your spiritual gift. Here's the first. Am I doing anything? Uh, I don't mean to insult anyone, but I, I, I think you might agree with me you can't really discern and identify your spiritual gift by 
uh, participating as we are tonight in a study on spiritual gifts. It's really in the course of serving that your uh, gift will more specifically arise to the fore. You'll get a more precise notion of what God has uh, particularly equipped and enable you to do in the process of doing something. And so if you're a Christian who, and we're all prone to it, if you're a Christian who's become maybe over the uh, years a little more of a spectator than an active participant uh, in uh, what God is up to in kingdom affairs, and it's possible to do that, you know, uh, to be passive and to let others do what needs to be done. And so if you're a spectator, kind of a Christian, you're really robbing yourself because you don't know what it is, really, that God has blessed you to do. You can only know it in the uh, process of active engagement. And if you're a spectator, I don't mean to hurt you, but I think this is true, you're not only robbing yourself, you're robbing the rest of us. There's something's missing when you're on the sidelines. We need you to complete what's lacking in the rest of what's going on around here. So it is in the process of serving, doing something, uh, that your particular gift will more precisely be identified. Now, it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, not only to give good gifts, but also to let you know what they are. But it seems that this usually happens in the process, not of thinking so much, not of reflecting so much, but really in the process of serving. So could I encourage you, do something for the cause of Christ, and then he will more precisely define whether it's your gift or not. Here's a second question. Am I doing what suits me? You know, sometimes when we become Christians, we stop thinking. Uh, but the mind that God has given us is a wonderful thing. And so to use some sanctified common sense about your area of gifting is perfectly acceptable. I'm not sure you have to sit around waiting for the mystical, magical, dramatic writing in the skies they use some sanctified common sense. Are you doing what suits you? Does it feel good? Is what you're doing very laborious and tedious and exhausting? Do you have no sense of joy or satisfaction in it? Probably it's not suiting you. And not only that, do others recognize that what you think is your gift is really your gift? It's probably not likely if you think you have a gift, but nobody else does. I remember to this day quite painfully, my wife and I were members of a church many moons ago. It was called Happy Valley Baptist Church. I'm not kidding you. Not, not Harper Valley, but Happy Valley Baptist Church. And it was out in Oregon. And every once in a while... Um, this particular lady who, and I'm sure her heart was right, but her vocal cords were not, she would be uh, called upon to sing a solo. And I got to tell you, it was just, I mean, I prayed for the rapture like never. <laughs> Please take me. You know, it was, and she had such a good time alone. And so I, 
You, you see, so just some comment. If you're the only one who thinks you're good at a particular thing, but when you do that particular thing, it pains those around you, it probably isn't your particular gift. Here's something else I have found out over the years. If you are serving in your area of gifting, you surely could get tired in the process. Usually physically drained, but not so much emotionally drained if you're doing the right thing. So if you're serving in your area of spiritual gifting, though you may get physically tired, the solution for it is simply take a nap or a vacation. Take a little break. And then you recoup, and God seems to breathe life back into you, and you're at it again. On the other hand, if you're spending too much time serving outside of your area of gifting, you're prone to experience not only a physical exhaustion, but more seriously, an emotional depletion. And the indication of that is a nap doesn't cure emotional depletion. You, you see, a nap or vacation or going fishing or something or eating pizza or whatever it is, uh, that's good stuff if you're physically tired. But if you're emotionally drained, uh, as I say, uh, a, a nap is not going to help you out. So that's a good way to figure out whether you're serving in your area of gifting or, or not. Uh, you know, um, I've spoken to certain uh, pastors, uh, our own and others, who sometimes are called upon to preach multiple times on a given day. And, uh, of course, they get uh, physically uh, tired, and, uh, but uh, are so rejoice, are so satisfied, are so passionate, are so uh, helped by Almighty God, are so supplied, are so um, energized uh, by uh, the Spirit who indwells them, that all they have to do is take a little time off on Monday and they're ready to go again on Sunday. You know what I mean? So this is a good way to, for you to figure out whether you are suitably serving. Are you doing anything? And secondly, uh, are you doing what suits you? And thirdly, um, ask yourself this question, am I doing what bears fruit? You know, last week we spoke about diversity in gifts, not only the kinds of gifts and the platforms in which we can use them, but also the effects. So there's different fruit born even by two people possessing the same gift. And we're not to compare ourselves to one another. That's not what I'm saying. But on the other hand, you see, God doesn't give a spiritual gift unless he has an expectation that that gift, when properly utilized, will produce fruit that remains. And so in the doing of whatever it is you're doing, if you're not seeing any results, I think it's good reason for you to wonder whether or not what you're doing is in your area of gifting. You ought to be seeing some results because God is smart and he doesn't waste spiritual gifts on us. They are to produce fruit in the lives of others. So those are just some diagnostic questions I would encourage you to ask yourself so that you can more precisely identify your gift and thereby be a good steward of it. See, once you determine your area of gift, uh, life becomes easier. You can prioritize. And so you're not prey to needs. There are needs all around us. You see, you make decisions not on the basis of needs. You make decisions on the basis of what God has equipped and called you to do. And you feel guilt-free that you could say no to the meeting of certain needs, lest it take you away from doing that which you are specifically equipped and called to do. So identifying your gift is important.
You know, here's something else that occurs to me. I think we naturally, if I could use that term, respond to situations in light of our gifting. For instance, let's say you're on your way here to church some Sunday. And you see out of the corner of your eye as you're driving here, uh, a church member, you, you know this church member, and his or her car has broken down. Uh, they're stranded along the side of the road. You stop to help them. If you have the gift of mercy, you're probably going to put your arm around that person and sympathize and empathize and find the best in it and encourage them and all the rest. If you have the gift of helps, uh, you may not put your arm around that person, but you may uh, help them to look under the hood and see if, in fact, there's something that could quickly be repaired by you. If you have the gift of administration, you're probably going to say, hey, do you, do you know if you have, um, do you have AAA? Do you have towing? Do you have, let me, listen, I got, I got all these numbers in my, in my little cell phone thing. I'll just call the wreckers service and, you know, I'll find out how much, you know, this person's going to kind of do all that kind of stuff. If you have the, uh, if you have the gift of uh, teaching, uh, you know, that person is going to probably tell you what you need to do to keep this from happening again. <laughs> so, so can you see how we, how we in, in, respond quite naturally and automatically to life situations in terms of our areas of gifting? So if you become not self-involved, I didn't say that, but a, a little bit of a student of yourself and you can see what what is your strategy in seeking to respond to the needs of people around you? I think you're going to see what your area of gifting is. It's not quite as mysterious as some of us would make it out uh, to be. So, here is now another principle of spiritual gifts. Uh, what I shared thus far is probably receivable to you, not controversial at all, but now it gets a little sticky. Uh, because I'd like uh, to suggest to you this. Some spiritual gifts are temporary, others are permanent. Now, here's where we well-intentioned Christians part ways. I realize this particular point um, is subject to difference of opinion. And if you have a different opinion than I just shared, please, let's not make this point a test of our fellowship. Let's just agreeably disagree, and we could pray for one another uh, that we would respectively see the light and that God would sort it out and all the rest. But let me tell you why I, I believe in this particular principle. And that is that some spiritual gifts are, in fact, uh, temporary and not permanent. It isn't because God has changed. Oh, no. I really believe what it says when it says in Hebrews that this God of ours he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. We uh, spoke about the unchangeableness or immutability of God way back when, when we dealt with that foundation stone, the nature of God. So I'm not saying that God's nature changes. I'm saying God's purposes change. And so if we study the gifts and can discern what God's intended purpose is for specific gifts, then in fact, if that purpose has been fulfilled, then a thinking person would be right to ask, well, then what is any longer the purpose of the gift? Now, let me get specific. I'm speaking of certain gifts such as the gift of tongues and 
of prophecy and of, uh, in the sense of foretelling the future in this sense, uh, of miracles and of healings. Sometimes these are referred to, not, not critically or negatively, just categorically, as sign gifts. Why? Because they are signs attesting to the authority of the one manifesting the gift. And so they're called sign gifts, these that I mentioned, because they were intended as signs to authenticate that certain spokesmen of God really were his authoritative representatives, specifically giving us scripture. So these gifts that I mentioned, these sign gifts belonged to and were manifested, as you read the scriptures, two groups of people in particular, prophets, one, apostles, two. Why do we separate out these as special categories of people? Oh, come on, folks, you can see that. Uh, the prophets gave us the Old Testament and the apostles gave us the New Testament. They uniquely wrote scripture. Nobody here is in that category. Nobody is writing new scripture. We are reading what they wrote and studying it. We're doing it even tonight, but we're not creating new scripture. We're not originating anything new. Now, you can imagine when the Lord Jesus, uh, when his earthly ministry came to an end, resurrected and ascended was he, things didn't end. Things didn't end with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. After John, what's the next book? Acts of the Apostles. And so the activity of the Lord Jesus directly here on earth perhaps came to an end when he ascended, but his great commission efforts didn't come to an end. They continued in the Acts of the Apostles. So I'm walking around 2,000 years ago, and this Jesus, who I followed uh, in a dedicated way, is no longer to be seen. He's gone. And some other guy, a Jewish guy, a fisherman, a smelly country bumpkin fisherman from rural country Galilee, buddies up alongside of me and says to me, Hey, Shepsel, because that's my name, laugh if you will, but that's the name. He'd say, Shepsel, just thought I'd tell you, <clears throat> my name is Yohanan, John, and I'm now the official earthly, one of the official earthly representatives of the uh, Lord Jesus, Yeshua, who was here but no longer is, for he has risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And this Yeshua, who you so deeply admire, has endowed me uh, with authority to write canonical, inspired, inerrant, uh, uncompromising, non-negotiable, written revelation, holy scripture, which you are bound to live by and submit to. Is that okay, Shepsel? And I'm going to say, Johnny, we used to play kickball. And now all of a sudden, you got this rank, and I'm supposed to submit to your authority? Johnny says, yeah, good point. Let me show you a few things. And Johnny shows me miracles. Johnny shows me God has endowed him with the capacity to suspend things in the natural order. That's what a miracle is, a suspension of natural law. A miracle is more than 
even ordinary divine intervention, which happens all the time, the very next breath you and I take is divine intervention. Put your hand here. The next beat on your heart is divine intervention. But a miracle is different than mere divine intervention. A miracle is an exception to the rule of the natural order. And if Johnny can pull that off, Johnny got my attention. So the Lord Jesus knew I would need some evidence to authenticate Johnny's claim and Peter's claim and uh, Shaul, Paul's claim and uh, Yaakov, James's claim and all these people. And so these people were endowed with sign gifts, the purpose of which was to attest to their authority on earth in the absence of their risen and ascended Savior. So they wrote the Old Testament, and they wrote the New Testament. Add it up. You got 66 books. That's it. Case closed. No more. Now we pour over them, praying for the Holy Spirit to illuminate and help us apply, but not to write new Scripture. And therefore, since canon, the Word of God is complete, goes from Genesis, eternity past, to Revelation, eternity future, since it's all complete, you tell me. What then today is the purpose of the sign gifts? Now, my dear fellow Christians who may differ from me, the burden of proof is on you. You tell me why there's a need for them to exist anymore when, in fact, we're past the era of the prophets and the apostles. You see? Nobody is adding new scripture. Teachers, preachers, students, we're seeing new insights into existing scripture, new ways to live by what's already there, but we're not adding to the 66 books of the Bible. So because of all of this, since God's word is complete, it has been written. Since there is no longer anybody appointed to write new scripture, therefore, in my opinion, the purpose of the sign gifts has ceased. Now, this separation I make of prophets and apostles is not mine alone. I'm just reading the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, you can take a look at it. It'll be on the screen. Ephesians 2, 19 to 21. By the way, this was written by one of those Jewish kids, uh, Shaul, who God enabled to do all kinds of sign gifts to get our attention. Here's what he said, Ephesians 2, 19 to 21. So then you, by the way, that's speaking to Gentile believers. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You used to be in the good old days, but now, okay, you're in, you're in. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. If you examine the context, you go back and read Ephesians 2. In this case, the saints is a reference to Jewish believers, in this, just in this context. Since you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the, what's the next word? Foundation. Think of a building. That's the analogy God gives us. A building has only one foundation. It's quite important. The strength and extent of the building is a function of the foundation. It is the most essential part of a construction project. The foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So don't you see why I make the point I do? Uh, they're, they're the foundation of this building which we are growing into, which is the universal church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has only one foundation. And then uh, you see it says Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone, continues the construction analogy. You know how buildings have cornerstones on it? So you've got a foundation, a 
apostles and prophets. You've got the chief cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where do we come in? In whom the whole building being fitted together, that's us, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So you have the uh, foundational level of the building known as the church laid by uh, a duly appointed uh, uh, apostles and prophets whose authority was confirmed by the attesting miracles, the signed gifts. Then what's built up on it is the superstructure, thank God, 2,000 years since the church came into being. And look at it now. It's a worldwide organism sharing the greatest story ever told, Jesus Christ being its chief cornerstone. Now, does this mean if the sign gifts have ceased for their purpose has been fulfilled? Am I saying that God no longer heals or performs miracles? I'm not saying that at all. I'm simply saying he, seems to me, doesn't heal or perform miracles through specific individuals in particular. He could, but it doesn't seem he does. So I, for one, am not going to seek the healer today. I'm going to seek <laughs> the Lord's help in physical affliction, in emotional travail, and everything else. And I'm going to go directly to him as a son adopted into his family. And I'm not going to travel great lengths to make recourse to someone claiming the same gift of healing today that the prophets and the apostles manifested. By the way, if you claim to have it, then do it the way they did it. We got M.D. Anderson right down the road. Go heal a few people. The apostles and the prophets didn't heal in the confines of controlled television studios when the cameras were running. They healed in the highways and the byways, and their healing was not contingent on the faith of the one to be healed. And so today's so-called gift of healing is nothing to do with the biblical manifestation at all. And if you think I'm hot, I'm real hot because it's a counterfeit Christianity, which is a distortion of the biblical roots of the spiritual gifts, tripping up all kinds of people. Remember years ago, I'll never forget, I was in Chicago. I was teaching a Bible study. I was with a group called Jews for Jesus. And at the end, the lady said, Stuart, I understand your oldest son has a kidney disease. And well, a healer is coming to such and such uh, church. Name the name of the healer. And uh, since, I, since I haven't been with you in a, in a while, I've learned not to to be so upfront about naming specific names. And, and so I'm not going to, I won't say Benny. Uh, anyway, so, so he's coming to town, and she says, you got to go. Get there early. Bring your son. I said, hang on just a second. I'm thinking. So I have the kind of God who's going to keep my son in this terrible situation with a kidney disease while we wait for some guy with funny hair to blow into town? Do you mean to tell me almighty, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent God can't pull it off before this quirky guy shows up? And if I go there and I'm not one of the lucky few who gets access to him, do I have to take my physically afflicted home, uh, a son home now on top of the physical affliction, feeling rejected by Almighty God because he didn't get to have access to the healer to blow the Holy Spirit on him and play this hocus-pocus, uh, 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 ghostly kind of a game? Come on, folks. Sanctified common 
sense. So if you claim to have the gift of healing, use it the way the apostles used it. I don't think it exists today, but I didn't say God doesn't heal. We have seen lots of healing around here. How? The Holy Spirit stirs you up at times. And lately, I've been going out to walk at night. I'm just so moved to pray because I'm so needy and overwhelmed by being alive. I just must pray. And then there are certain times when I just feel like I must pray specifically. So I set out walking, and I don't exactly know what to pray for. And then, sure enough, something will be impressed upon me. I know it's the very Spirit of God, and I'm so moved to pray by the Holy Spirit for a particular person or a thing or an outcome. And I just know God's going to be at work in providing a healing touch of one kind or another to that person, because not because of the power of my prayer, but he empowered me to know about the person's needs and to pray, not just talk. I mean really pray. So don't, don't accuse me of saying God doesn't heal anymore. I just said he doesn't do it through hocus-pocus guys claiming the gift but not manifesting it the way the apostles did. That's all. Did I say there's no miracles? I didn't say there's no miracles today. I didn't say anything like that. But I don't think there are miracle workers in the sense in which there were during the time of the prophets and the apostles. Now, look, if you differ from me, okay, we can deal with it. Don't leave the church. Don't go crazy. Don't be mad. And, be, and I'm open to hearing from you. I think you're dead wrong. I'll tell you that right now. But, I, you know, because I study this stuff. But, 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 but I'll listen to you uh, anyway. We can get along. Can I share with you another passage of Scripture here? Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, along these same lines to kind of hammer home the point. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Boy, ain't that the question of all time. Well, after it was at the first, we're talking about the gospel message. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord. The Lord Jesus came to tell, to be the greatest story ever told. So after it was spoken by the Lord, it was confirmed to us. Now, the us is those who lived in the first century. The Lord spoke the salvation message, and it was confirmed to those of us alive here now when this Hebrews was written, this book. It was confirmed uh, to us, how? By those, uh, so there's the Lord who came to offer good news, and that good news message was confirmed to those who heard it, and they heard it through those who heard it, and God confirmed it by bearing witness with them. God, Almighty God, bore witness with those who heard the good news from him and communicated it to others here in the first century. And how did God confirm it? Look, it says right there, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So the Lord Jesus came with good news. His intimate group of followers heard it. They shared it when his earthly ministry ended with others who heard it. But their sharing of it needed some confirmation for it to be believable by those who heard. 
And the Lord offered the confirmation, and there it is. Signs and wonders and various miracles and all the rest. Confirming their authority to continue on his ministry after his death, burial, and resurrection. Okay. So do you mind if I take a deep breath? Are you tired? I'm exhausted. I think it's this pink shirt. It's just robbing me of my macho. Pink. It's like a pink thing. How about this? One closing principle, general principle on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This one. They are absolutely useless without love. They're useless without love. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. But earnestly, Paul writes, desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. Last week I told you not to seek the gifts. The gifts are given, I made the point. But here it's, I, I seem to be wrong, because Paul said, no, earnestly desire the greater gifts. So this is taken by some uh, to, to justify their seeking of gifts. No, 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 you're missing the whole context. It's written to the Corinthians. They were focused on the sign gifts, and one in particular, the gift of tongues, who Paul ranks as being the most minor and insignificant of all the gifts. It's in this context that Paul is saying, hey, if you're going after anything, focus your attention on the greater gifts. And if you hang with me, July 11th, we'll find out that the greater gifts are the clear speaking gifts, not the gobbledygook gifts, then nobody knows what you're talking about. Okay, so we'll, 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 we'll. Okay, so, so he says, I'll show you a more excellent way. What's the more excellent way that Paul is talking about? Well, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 1. So it's the very next verse. By the way, the way the, the way the chapters are divided in the Bible sometimes isn't so hot. Did you know the chapter divisions are not inspired? that was done to help us. Because I wouldn't, I wouldn't like end 1 Corinthians 12 where it ends because verse 31 is like a direct connect to what comes next. So, so don't get nervous. Sometimes if you're doing Bible study, if someone would just, just get you into chapter 13 at the same, not end at chapter 12, okay? That's not inspired and inerrant, not the, the chapter divisions. That's just there to help us out. Okay, the first, first Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians uh, 13.1, what is the more excellent way Paul speaks of? Here you go. If I speak with the tongues of men, and of angels, but do not have love. Ah. Then I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The more excellent way is love. So, so here's how he makes his point that the more excellent way is love. He singles out in that verse the gift of tongues. Why? Because the Corinthians did. He's just playing along with them. Their whole focus of attention was on the gift of tongues. So Paul, to make it a point, is bringing out their preoccupation with tongues to its most extreme form. So he's saying, listen here, tongues-speaking Corinthians. If, if means hypothetical. If, hyperbole, you'll see, deliberate exaggeration. If I speak with the tongues of men. Hey, how many known languages are there on earth today? You have any idea? I don't. Like a lot. Hundreds? Thousands? Chuck, what? 40,000? 
four, 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 four thousand. I believe Chuck because he's an accountant. So four thousand. If I speak with the tongues of men, the word is glosa. We'll get to it July 11th. It means known languages. If there are 4,000 known languages, if I speak with all the languages of men, that's what Paul is saying. And not only that. And if you add to it all the languages known to angels. So if men know 4,000 languages, now, a given man could know how many. can't know all 4,000, right? I met someone once I spoke seven languages. That's impressive, right? Let's say someone knows 100. Pretty cool. So if I speak, if I have the capacity to speak with lots of languages, human languages, and I could even speak in languages known to angels, you know, if man, if a guy could know seven languages, a good angel on a bad day could know like eight. <laughs> so this is what Paul is saying. It's hyperbole. Look, if I, you, you, don't talk to me about tongues, he's telling the Corinthians. Good night if I have the capacity to speak with the tongues of men and of angels. But I don't have love. I'm a noisemaker. You see what he's saying? He is rebuking them. Now, some people think he's encouraging them to speak with tongues. No, he's not. He's yelling at them for their distorted focus of attention. It's not encouraging. Look, you know what he's saying? Look, look, look. The great error of the Corinthian church was to confuse spiritual gifts with spirituality. They were a gifted church, but they weren't spiritual. Today, people confuse gifts with spirituality. I mean, you go to certain fellowships and good night. It's a badge of honor to have certain spiritual gifts. In fact, if you don't, you're made to feel like a second-class citizen. It's kind of a one-upsmanship. Oh, no. Paul says, no. Don't confuse spiritual gifts, which you don't deserve, didn't merit, received by grace. Remember I told you gifts, charis, means grace. God gave it to you graciously, gave it to you charismatically, undeserved, gracious. So he's saying, no, your spiritual gift's not a measure of your spirituality. You know what the Corinthians did? They emphasized the gifts of the Spirit to the exclusion of the fruit of the Spirit, one manifestation of which is love. You know what's more important than the gifts of the Spirit? The fruit of Notice I said gifts, plural, fruit, singular. Because when the Holy Spirit fills you, me, is unquenched, unbridled, has room to operate, then from one spirit comes all manner of wonderful things, love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, self-control. All those things are a package deal unquench the one Holy Spirit in you and His nature lives out, manifests through yours. So the Corinthians were quenching the Holy Spirit, you know, with immorality, with divisiveness, with hateful conversation, all kinds of stuff. Uplifting the gifts, quenching the Holy Spirit, and as a result, extinguishing love. And so... That's why Paul wrote, do you notice, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Then what chapter comes after 12? 
13. And after 13, what chapter? Yeah, 14. But chapter 12 is about spiritual gifts. And chapter 14, if you hang in there, not next week, we won't be here, but July 11th, we'll do chapter 14. You'll see that's about spiritual gifts. So what did chapter 13 come about? It's the love chapter. Everyone uses 1 Corinthians 13 at their weddings. It's still, you know, love is patient. Love is, you know, the whole, everyone uses that. Why in the world did Paul insert, interrupt the flow of his converse, his treatise on gifts? Why did he interrupt between 12 and 14? Why did he insert the love chapter in chapter 13? Just to show us the gifts, a focus on the gifts. That doesn't make you spiritual. That doesn't make you attractive to unsaved people. You could be gifted, but if you're unloving, they're not seeing living proof of a loving God, though they'd be watching for it. So can, can, you, can you see what he does? So here's what he does. On your own, you could read 1 Corinthians 13, the first few verses. And this is essentially what Paul is saying. Again, deliberate exaggeration to make a point. Even if I speak with all the languages of men and angels, even if I have the gift of prophecy to the extent that I know all the mysteries of the universe, even if I have the gift of faith to the extent that I can move mountains, even if I have the gift of giving to such extent that I give all my possessions away to feed the poor, even with all of this, if I don't have love, I am nothing. That's not an incentive to seek and utilize those gifts, which I believe have passed by and large. It's deliberate exaggeration to make a point. Even if you got all this stuff to the nth degree, you're still a slouch if you're quenching the Holy Spirit's activity in your life. That's what he's saying. There was someone named Renee Spitz. I don't know too much about this person, except this person made a journey to an orphanage once in South America. And there were 97 little kids there between the ages of three months and three years. Uh, there were financial problems, funding problems. Uh, there was a nursing staff at the orphanage, and they meant well. And so they would do the best they could to change the children's diapers and to uh, uh, provide food and all the rest. But because they were stretched thin, money was short, uh, when they finished uh, providing for those needs, there was no time left for them to uh, hold the children, cuddle the children, talk to the children. And so Renee Spitz noticed a high incidence of abnormalities in the lives of these 97 orphans between the ages of three months and three years. She saw all kinds of signs of abnormality, so many. A disproportionate number of the kids had a loss of appetite. Many had a, a, a terrible inability to sleep comfortably. So many had kind of a vacant uh, stare in, in their eyes, expression on their face. Many were deteriorating physically even over time. Their faces looked troubled. They, they whimpered all the time, and many died. Well, they didn't die from a lack of food. They died from lack of loving touch. So I want to know how many out there, and I want to know how many in here, are dying, really, emotionally and in other ways, for lack of loving touch. It's not very impressive to see someone flaunt and manifest their spiritual gift if it is detached from the fruit of the Spirit, one evidence of which is love. 
The world is not dying for a tongue speaker, a healer, or even a teacher. The world is looking for evidence, living proof of a loving God. But I have to tell you something. I cannot love unlovely people that way, and neither can you. I don't have it within me to love that way. It is not my nature to be loving towards others. It is my nature to be centered on self and to take care of myself and to look for others to meet my needs. It is not my nature to want to meet somebody else's needs. So I'm aware of this desperate limitation I have in loving the way I should. And then it occurs to me that the very Spirit of God, living God, loving God, is in us, is in me and is in you, and that He is the most priceless gift, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And He has given each of us, in spite of our proclivity to be centered on, uh, centered on self, He's given each of us this marvelous capacity to love others in the power of, for the glory of, and in the name of Christ Jesus. So we must daily not be seeking more gifts, but we must daily be filled with the very Spirit of God so that the Spirit of God can minimize our nature and take control of our lives and manifest His loving, unconditionally loving nature through us. So my fellow Christians, this talk on spiritual gifts has undoubtedly caused some difference of opinion. Can we not love each other through it? What a terrible satanic interference with our conversation it would be if we divide over this topic instead of just saying, I disagree with what Stuart said. That's okay. You don't lose your salvation over that. But people don't come into salvation if they see the children of God not loving one another. They'll know we are Christians, not by our spiritual gifts, but by the fruit of the Spirit of God manifested in our lives, first towards one another and then through outsiders. So again, in summary, what we've gone over, the spiritual gifts are spiritual, not natural. There is a great variety of spiritual gifts. They are given. They are given for the benefit of others. It is very important to identify your spiritual gift. Some are temporary, others are permanent, and they are absolutely useless without love. So my fellow Christians, Christ ones, called by his name, his representatives on earth, Let's love one another with an in spite of kind of love, which can only be attributed to the loving spirit of God who has full sway, because we give it to him, in our lives. And then the world will see living proof of a loving God. And they'll get on board and say, Lord Jesus, love me the way they love one another. Well, dear folks, Lord willing, on July 11th, we'll complete our discussion on the Holy Spirit. We will not meet together 
Do you know this next week? Because next week is the 4th of July on Wednesday night. And so it's firecracker time. And so we will not be meeting here uh, to celebrate that marvelous day. So enjoy yourself on that night. But if you care to come back on July 11th, we'll talk about the particular gift causing so many questions, much confusion, the gift of tongues. And I shall tell you the truth about the gift <laughs> of tongues. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord Jesus, of course, we bow before you in our physical uh, posture, but mainly we want to, in our hearts and lives, we want to bend ourselves, the flesh, towards you, uh, submitting ourselves to your authority and lordship and perfections and essentially saying to you, Father, we really, really want to look more and more like you. We want to be like you. We finally, each of us, each of us has a heavenly dad we can be oh so proud of. And so we want, we want people to see you in the way we live out our lives, particularly as we express your love first to the members of the household of the faith. Perish the thought that we here would part over things like differences of opinion with regard to how you, the Holy Spirit, manifest yourself. In truth, these matters are far bigger than we are, but you're bigger than our differences and can help us to overcome and stick together for Christ is our center and really all else is simply circumference. Help us to live centered on Christ, for you are the core of our being. And we thank you for our gathering tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, dear folks, could I uh, um, pose upon you just for a few more important moments before we take...